Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the life cycles of stuff. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And today, Sarah, I'm going to talk about where Pangea went. Ooh, Pangea. So Pangea is Greek for all of Earth or whole Gaia. And the spelling has actually changed uh, since we were kids, Sarah. It used to be... Oh, has it? Yeah. The the more common spelling when we were kids was P-A-N-G-E-A. And the current preferred spelling is P-A-N-G-A-E-A. So. Oh, they added an A. Yeah, fun fact. <laughs> so Pangea was a supercontinent. And it existed around 280 to 230 million years ago. And so I'm going to give a little geologic background first. Not too much, both because I'm not a geologist and because it's it's just so complicated. The The jargon in this... I, I was like drowning in jargon. So I've tried to make it fairly simple, particularly because my understanding of it is fa- fairly surface level. Oh, and thank you because jargon makes like me get really confused and I just want to go lay in bed. <laughs> right. It's super useful when you're speaking to peers in a spe- specific field because you can better understand what each other's talking about. But for a layperson podcast like ours, it's not practical at all. Mm-hmm. So Pangea was part of the lithosphere, the lithosphere, which means rock sphere or rock world is Earth's crust. So the part we like walk on and plow for food and stuff like that. And then the upper mm. upper mantle, the mantle is below the crust and it is magma. So if you are familiar with perhaps the Austin Powers series uh, magma comes up to humorous effect multiple times some of the earth's crust is covered in water some is not so there's crust under the ocean under lakes under rivers and then the stuff like i said we walk on we plow we uh, build landfills and motocross parks on is also (laughs) the crust and the crust and the upper mantle is cut up into tectonic plates these are chunks of the lithosphere. There are around 12 on Earth, and they're movable. They're volatile. Earthquakes, tsunamis, mountain creation, ocean rift creation, etc. are all the results of these plates shifting around. The major reason they move is that the mantle is technically a very hot liquid. It's like liquid rock, basically. And the mantle cools as it gets closer to the Earth's surface and warms up as it gets closer to the center. And this creates an actual flow of magma under the crust. And that flow is movement, which pushes and shoves the plates around. And these tectonic plates can also move to smash continents together or pull them apart. So for Pangea, like I said, it's a supercontinent. It was the first supercontinent humans have successfully proved existed. And I'll go into how the heck we know this at the end, because a lot of this is such a big, broad concept that understanding how we've put the information together, I think, is valuable. So around, like I said, 280 to 230 million years ago, North America, Africa, Europe, and South America were contiguous with each other. 
like physically contiguous, all smashed together. And Antarctica, huh. Australia, the Indian subcontinent, Madagascar, and Asia were all maybe slightly separated by small bodies of water, like rivers or small seas, but they were all very close to the rest of the the supercontinent. So everything that was land on Earth was just like right up next to each other. And obviously that's not the case now. If you look at maps of any projection of the Earth now, you can see that the continents by and large are very separated. Europe and Asia is an exception. They are right next to each other. And while continents are a human concept, they're not something that, uh, you know, it's a way for us to describe what we notice versus something that is an absolute understanding. The discrete continents are currently mostly discrete, which means separate from each other. When they were Pangaea, they were not. So how did we get from this big old supercontinent to just regular old continents? Uh, Magma, which is in the mantle, liquid rock, seeped up between weaknesses in the Earth's crust, mostly starting off around what would become the Atlantic Ocean. And this created what's called a volcanic rift zone. So a whole bunch of volcanoes cropped up. And the volatility of those volcanoes resulted in the supercontinents splitting up with the Atlantic Ocean forming. Uh, I, th- hmm. I think of, I tend to think of uh, the first Fantasia and the animation for the Rite of Spring. I don't know if you remember that, but it was a lot of dinosaurs and there was like lots of volcanoes and continents rifting apart. It was very bombastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was a striking set of imagery. So that's something to think about while you're listening to me talk about this. I kind of think of pie crust. I don't know why. That's another... Like when you... Yeah, when you bake a pie and then like it starts to... It's all bubbling up in the middle and then it cools off and then it moves it moves apart and it comes together as it heats and as it cools. That's a perfect example. It really is. Okay. It's very fitting because you've got the crust on top and then you've got the magma below and then on, uh, you know, toward the crust as it cools, the, the stuff towards the crust is cooling faster than stuff at the bottom. So as continents moved further from the volcanic zone, as they're getting sort of shoved away by these, this big volcanic rift, uh, their movement slowed down from cooling. And this was particularly noticeable in, in what would become North America. And so Pangaea got split into two north and south continents, uh, Laurasia and Gondwanaland. And then after that, they kind of just got to where we are now, except the continents were in different places. And so I'm going to Mm -hmm. sort of go through from oldest to most recent, just a brief description of what we're pretty sure the Earth looked like. So with Pangaea, during the Permian era, so just estimate around 240 million years ago, everything is at a 45 to 90 degree angle to its current orientation. There's much more north-south alignment than an east-west alignment. Everything's a lot closer Mm -hmm. together. Although Eastern Asia is separated by a body of water from uh, the rest of the land masses, but it's not considered a separate continent. And we could, we could get into the nitty gritty of what is and is not a continent, but I'm not entirely sure that geologists entirely agree about that. So I don't know that I'm the one to speak to that. So 
Think of all the continents real close together and turned on their side. Permian. Next, Triassic. That's around 200-ish million years ago. That's, I mean, it's a big year span. Just think of 200 million years ago. So 40 million years later. All the land masses are still much closer together than they are now. Australia was a chunk of Antarctica. And then that was also contiguous with South America and Africa. And huh. North America and Europe are split by a tiny bit of water. North America is also contiguous at this time with Northern South America. So things spread a little bit during the Triassic period, but they aren't as far flung as they are now. And things are also starting to sort of rotate from that North-South orientation that I was talking about to closer to an East-West orientation. So it's almost like a separation and turning process. Now the Jurassic period around 150 million years ago, South America and Africa are, are attached to each other by South America's east coast and Africa's west coast. The Indian subcontinent is still part of Antarctica. Europe and North America are a lot closer together than they are now. North America is mostly one piece. Europe is two to three pieces because there's uh, oceans that are existing within what we would consider the current landmass of Europe. And Asia is actually surrounded by island chains and barrier islands. So this was a big time of sort of flooding of Europe and Asia. And then some movement of, say, the Indian subcontinent and Madagascar as well. Now, the Cretaceous period, 80 million years ago, North America is in around three chunks with ocean in between. Africa, huh. Yeah. Africa's in two chunks with ocean in between or sea. I don't know the titles of these seas. Again, it's there's so much specific vocabulary for this geology that it's beyond me to communicate properly in this podcast. Uh, Europe is almost just an island chain, and Antarctica isn't particularly icy. So there's a lot of separation, a lot of splitting of what we would currently understand as continents into smaller pieces separated by water. And then after that, the water receded a lot. Uh, the Indian subcontinent didn't smash into Asia until 40 to 50 million years ago. And there was also a lot of movement of uh, the Middle Eastern subcontinent that includes places like Saudi Arabia and Qatar and UAE and Yemen, etc. So those two pieces of Earth's crust were moving for a long time. Because the Cretaceous period, like I said, 80 million years ago, and the Indian subcontinent didn't slap into Asia and form the Himalayan mountains until 40 to 50 million years ago. Hmm. And then after that, there's some adjustment and some spacing. It almost, I know that this is a silly comparison, but it almost looks like someone was just doing touch-ups until they got to the, the f what they would consider a final map of what the world looks like today. <laughs> so it's just a little Bob Ross what were you doing <laughs> yeah just little nudges from you know the eternal uh, existence of Bob Ross <laughs> <laughs> and then we got to where we are today now where we are today is not permanent there's plenty of tectonic activity going on right now and so where the continents are now and ocean levels and things like that are not uh I know this is kind of on the nose, but set in stone. <laughs> but 
But then it begs the question, how do we even know any of this? Because this is, this is some macro concept going on here. So there's a few mm-hmm. different ways. You'll notice that I mentioned things like Cretaceous period, Jurassic period, Triassic period, Permian period. So those are time chunks that are often typically used also to describe animal existences and what the world looked like and when things evolved as animals and fossil evidence. And between paleontologists and paleogeologists, there's been a very good connection between the continuity of fossil evidence and the continuity of continents at the time that the fossils were formed. So paleontologists and paleogeologists have traced fossils between, say, the east coast of South America and the west coast of Africa or things evolving independently on the Indian subcontinent until 40 million years ago. Or, say, North America and Europe sharing species continuity and fossil continuity at specific times and then losing that continuity. So that gives us, to some degree of specificity, when continents were contiguous and when they were separated. You can also do that with geological trends. So geological trends of rock formation and different, you know, crust substructures and things like that can be matched between the coasts of continents that would have been contiguous. And you can even, if you cut up a map of the world, you can even kind of fit the coastlines together. Not as well as, you know, an actual puzzle, but they fit together well enough that it becomes somewhat obvious with additional evidence that they were at one point contiguous. There's also mountain chain continuity. Different mountain chains have intercontinental continuity. And they also, so you can tell from the geologic makeup, the age of the rocks, and then the sort of mountain structures and how they can be traced One example is uh, the Appalachian Mountains. It's actually a chain of mountains that runs across the eastern U.S., up across Ireland, Britain, Greenland, and Scandinavia. So there is a continuous mountain chain that runs across multiple continents, as we know them now. And that is a lot. Yeah, I had no idea. I've spent more time in the Appalachian Mountains than I ever expected to and had no idea, so... Are those the Stack Mountains in Ireland? That is supposedly where my father's side of the family is from. I think so, yes. Awesome! <laughs> continuity. Sarah's family yes. continuity, you can trace. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's, and this was a little beyond me when I read it, but I'll try to describe it at least superficially. Paleomagnetics. This involves looking at magnetic orientation of rocks, particularly lavas of different ages. So magma is below the surface, lava is above the surface. There's work done to tease out a type of magnetic orientation that indicates continental drift. And I even said in my notes, it's above my pay grade to explain it, but it's apparently very accurate information. (laughs) So... That is where Pangaea went. I mean, it went to here today, but it's how we know Pangaea existed. And Pangaea is not the only supercontinent that's known. 
but it's one that's sort of most often taught to elementary schoolers in the United States. So, And I know in the part of North Carolina that we live, we actually live in the Triassic Basin of North Carolina. Like, oh, yeah. we live on a part of the continent that, like, part of North Carolina that basically wasn't connected to the continent and kind of smashed up onto it. So there's like a ridge that you can actually drive up when you go into Raleigh, I believe from where we are in the Durham area and drive up into Raleigh. It's like the Triassic Basin and you can actually go and look at like a different kind of rock that, you know, wasn't on our side is my understanding of it. Yeah, you're not wrong. Uh, I've done soil work in just this county but it's part of the Triassic Basin and my supervisor would call this area uh, sort of a um, a geological stretch mark so everything (laughs) got kind of pulled apart but not completely enough to form say an inland sea or a lake or uh, even a full-blown river basin but just sort of teased into where we are now, including soils that are very strange for the region. Uh, yeah. Like smectitic clays, which I don't need to get into clay. Smectitic? Yeah. I don't need to get into clay smectitic. composition. Smectitic. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's... How is that spelled? S-M-E-C-T-I-T-I-C, I think. Smectitic. Thank you. that's a fascinating word oh it is and uh it's interesting clay it absorbs water very readily and holds it until it Mm -hmm. can't anymore and it it swells up while it's absorbing that water and then it just the water runs right off and the swelling of the clay can cause serious damage to house foundations and anything buried underground uh, that you would need to keep in one place. I've seen septic tanks twisted in half from <gasps> just the swelling of this clay. I've seen house foundations shoved away from the swelling of this clay. I've seen well casings sh- like collapsed. So it's uh, an interesting force of nature. When we moved here, I remember when a like an old timer we were talking to, he was saying that the ice storm basically the, I don't I'm not remembering which one it was. It was a big one that nobody had power for like a week. He said the major problem wasn't really the ice, it was that it had rained for like 2 weeks beforehand and so the clay had absorbed a bunch of water and the trees the pine trees which don't really root very deeply anyway just as soon as they had any weight on them and the clay the clay soil like was just letting the the trees just fall over oh yeah so there are trees down everywhere yep it's the type of thing where pines are generally strong oh yeah and uh when it rains a lot here i always worry about windy days after spring so in the summer? Yes. Because the trees have kind of been like shoved up by the clay and then whoosh, down. Yes. Well, my brand new Mazda 3 was destroyed by a tree after. Like, <gasps> yeah, it was. Oh, God. I was so glad you weren't in that. Yeah, it was just uprooted. The tree was just uprooted. It wasn't a branch. The tree just fell right over. <laughs> And it was probably because it was like in northern Durham, like not in kind of the southern area where I live, where the soil is different. 
<laughs> I just remembered some poor mail carrier got killed by a falling tree in Raleigh. Oh, no. Yeah, she was in her mail truck. Sorry, that's a really That's awful. Point. Well, I hope that she is happy wherever good male people go after death. And if she's reincarnated, she's reincarnated into something really awesome. Yes. <laughs> if you believe in that sort of thing. Yes. But we remember her on this podcast. I sure do. <laughs> so what are you covering okay. today, Sarah? I'm going to talk about where did the United States' only emperor go? Ha <laughs> ha! <laughs> so I'm going to talk about Norton I, the Emperor of the United States and the Protector of Mexico. He was known uh, originally as Joshua Abraham Norton. He was born in England and his birth year is all over the place. And the final agreed upon birth year after some digging is 1818. So he was born in England and um, his family was moved from England to South Africa as part of the colonization effort known as the 1820 settlers into South Africa. So it was a big group of uh, settlers, white settlers from the UK that moved down to South Africa to basically farm and etc. So in 1849, um, his mother and father died. So around there, his mother and father died. He inherited about $40,000 from his parents. So his parents were successful and then he inherited that money once they died, which is about $1.1 million in, today, in today's money, which is, I mean isn't really a lot because of inflation, but it's still quite a bit of money. Uh, he came to the U.S. on a ship with all that money, and he increased his wealth by being uh, a real estate person. He owned a cigar factory and a rice mill. So by 1852, it is thought that he had built his wealth up to a quarter million dollars, $250,000, which is a lot of money. That number is mentioned quite a few different places, but it's never really been substantiated. Regardless, he had a lot of money. Mm -hmm. So in about 1852, there was a rice shortage that caused a famine in China. So China issued a ban on the export of rice. So he, thinking that he would sign a contract and corner the market on rice, decided to sign a contract for to import rice from Peru, which was producing rice. And lo and behold, a bunch of ships came into port that his ship was full of rice, but then there was a ton of other ships full of rice as well. So he did not end up cornering the market. The rice market plummeted here and he lost a bunch of money. He had to eventually sell off a lot of all of his real estate to pay off his debts. He took the person that he signed the contract with to court and then saying that he had been misled, um, but then he lost. It went up to the Supreme Court of California and he eventually lost. In 1856, he filed bankruptcy and then he's off the radar for a little bit. Mm. We don't know. In 1859, he was living in a working class poor boarding house. So he was kind of, he was on the edges. He was on the fringes. He was definitely poor at that point. And then in September 17th, 1859, he shows up in the San Francisco Bulletin newspaper offices and declares himself emperor of the United States because he decided everything would go better if he ran the country himself. His <laughs> demands and yeah, 
they so they are like oh this guy's interesting it must have been a slow news day so they published his declaration of emperorship and it goes like this at the peremptory request and desire of a large majority of the citizens of these united states I, Joshua Norton, formerly of Algoa Bay, Cape of Good Hope, and now for the last nine years and ten months past of San Francisco, California, declare and proclaim myself emperor of these United States, and in virtue of the authority thereby in me vested, do hereby order and direct the representatives of these different states of the Union to assemble in musical hall on this city on the first day of February next then and there to make such alterations in the existing laws of the union as may ameliorate the evils under which this country is laboring and thereby cause confidence to exist both at home and abroad in our stability and integrity. Yeah. <laughs> the, pa the paper, yeah, the paper continued to publish his demands and royal decrees because everybody was like, this guy's great. <laughs> <laughs> so on, he, he has a bunch of different decrees. I'm only going to list a few of his acts and decrees as emperor. I, I do have a link for a bunch of other ones that he had. And there were some fake ones. These, the ones that I'm going to link to are actual, they are believed to be genuine. So on October 12, 1859, he abolished Congress. His decree stated that fraud and corruption prevent a fair and proper expression of the public voice. That open violation of the laws are constantly occurring, caused by mobs, parties, factions, and undue influence of political sex. That the citizen has not the protection of person and property, which he is entitled. So he abolishes Congress in 18, October 12, 1859. So they, you know, they kind of ignored him. <laughs> I wonder why. Mm -hmm. So in 1860, he was kind of um, upset that, that they had ignored him. So he called for the dissolution of our republic and forbade Congress from meeting. They still met. <laughs> in 1862, he demanded the Catholic Pope and the Protestant churches, all of them, recognize him as emperor and ordain him public publicly as emperor of the United States. In 1863, he was kind of fed up with Napoleon, so he declared himself also the protector of Mexico. In 1869, he fired Abraham Lincoln for not <laughs> preventing the Civil War. He then dissolved the Democrat and Republican parties, stating there was too much political strife between them. He was done with them. I mean, he was not wrong. It <laughs> I, I'm agreeing with him. So uh, in 1872, he decreed that there should be a $25 fine for anyone calling the city of San Francisco Frisco. He hated that. He said it was a, uh, those people were guilty of high misdemeanors and they owe they owed the treasury, the emperor's treasury, $25 anytime they use that term. <laughs> Forget swear jars. We have a Frisco jar. <laughs> exactly. Um, he declared, he decreed that the, a League of Nations should be formed and all fighting over religion should be forbidden. This is kind of uh, prophetic, actually, because later we, you know, we have the United Nations now. But at the time, you know, nobody was, everyone was kind of amused by this guy. But also in 1872, this is also another prophetic thing. He decreed that a bridge be constructed between San Francisco and Oakland. 
The bridge was later constructed, probably having nothing to do with him, obviously, and is known today as the Bay Bridge. However, in 2004, a bunch of people wanted to rename parts of the bridge the Emperor Norton Bridge, kind of hearkening back to him saying, you know, this would be a good idea. And But Alameda County didn't pass similar resolution, so it wasn't renamed. But yeah, that was kind of a prophetic thing, too. And Emperor Norton was pretty known as a pretty fair and generous guy. Uh, there's a a lot of stories of him being stepping between rioters, uh, anti-Chinese sentiment rioters, and a Chinese family. So during the 1860s and 70s, there was a lot of anti-Chinese sentiment in San Francisco. So working class people blame the Chinese for taking their jobs. It is not unsimilar to the scapegoat du jours that we've had throughout history. Uh, I'm thinking Mexican immigrants at this point. But anyway, the Chinese were the scapegoat du jour for this time and place. So because of the impoverished conditions of the poor people in San Francisco were suffering. So Emperor Norton um, stepped between rioters who were uh, going to kill a Chinese family, it looked like. He stepped between them and he recited the Lord's Prayer until the crowd dispersed. So if you can imagine a guy in kind of a outlandish soldier dress with a giant hat with a peacock plume on it, uh, reciting the Lord's Prayer over and over between a ma, an angry mob and a Chinese family, you can kind of see like, wow, that's really pretty brave or crazy or, but anyway, he supposedly dispersed the crowd and the Chinese family were able to get away. It's a pretty famous story about Emperor Norton. Yeah. Cool. So our great emperor, this is what he did during the day. When he wasn't issuing his decrees, he inspected the steam cable cars, the rail cars, the public works, construction projects, sidewalks, and the appearances of police officers. So this is what he did during the day. He got free meals from multiple restaurants who advertised that they were visited by the emperor. His seal of approval was pretty sought after by a lot of restaurants. He got a central railroad pass that included free meals and rides for life. He had his own free balcony seats at the theater. He issued his own currency, which businesses would actually take. Oh, my God. And today they, yeah, today they are collector's items. And the actual, the authenticated ones that aren't fake can fetch up to about $10,000 at auction. This man uh, was Nor way ahead of his time. Yeah. Norton, uh, he would sell uh, stuff to his tourists. He would sell his currency to tourists and charge a 7% interest. <laughs> <laughs> he was the Fed. Yeah. And businesses started making souvenir items of him, like little statues and little souvenir -y things. And they supposedly gave uh, Emperor Norton a cut. At one point, he was arrested by an auxiliary police officer for vagrancy and mental illness. Um, there was such an uproar by the public that the police chief issued a public apology and, and then ordered the officers to salute him whenever he was near. And in response, the emperor issued a very nice pardon. <laughs> yeah so he walked around in a military uniform with gold epaulets brass buttons ribbons uh he had various hats but he he wore a hat with a peacock feather usually and usually carried a cane or an umbrella and he had a ceremonial sword 
So his uniform, as he was a vagrant, got really gross and tattered. And apparently at one point, the Army Post at the Presidio in San Francisco gave him a new one, which the city paid for. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) His reign was a wonderful, whimsical 21 years long. And on January 8th, so uh, the anniversary is not too long ago, January 8th, 1880, he collapsed and died. Uh, There are rumors that he was secretly wealthy and he was just, you know, one of those, I don't know, mad eccentric rich guys, but that was not true. He was very poor. They found about $5 on his body and the room in his boarding house was just full of his hats, uh, his walking sticks, and the issued currency that he had printed and uh, actually letters to Queen Victoria and other heads of state from around the world. He wrote letters to other heads of states and sometimes they even wrote back. Like he actually had... Letters that he wrote between Queen Victoria and other people and other heads of state in the world, which I find amazing. That, I mean, that's kind of beautiful. Yeah. So since he was so poor, he was originally going to get like a pauper's burial, but money was raised by people in the city to give him a really fancy rosewood casket and really nice funeral. His funeral procession, and I've read varying numbers, but 10,000 people seems to be like where it ends up. There's about 10,000 people um, lining the streets for his funeral procession. Yeah, he was really well-loved. He was originally entombed in the Masonic Cemetery in San Francisco, but in the 30s, his remains, along with the remains of a lot of people in that cemetery, were moved to Woodlawn Cemetery in Colma, California. You can visit it. It's still there. You can go and pay homage to our wonderful emperor. The And the San Francisco Mu- uh, Museum has a list of the decrees that are considered authentic on display, so you can go there and see emperor norton memorabilia you can also take a walking tour of san francisco led by someone dressed as emperor norton and it's called emperor norton's fantastic san francisco time machine and it the it's about two miles long and takes almost three hours i have their website for info if you're in san francisco want to do that sounds awesome i really want to do it i want to do it as soon as possible i know he was he was pretty awesome so According to accounts at the time, he was very fair and compassionate. Like there's accounts that he was very, a very a nice guy. Like people actually, he talked to everyone. Everyone seemed to love him. And from his decrees, you can kind of see he abhorred political strife and wanted everyone to just kind of get along. Um, both Mark Twain and Robert Louis, Stevens, Robert Louis Stevenson have characters modeled after him in their novels. They were contemporaries of his. And he is a saint in the in Discordianism, the Discordian religion. <laughs> That's so cool. So... Yeah, so uh, people still ask today, was he really mad? Like, was he actually mentally ill? Or was he just eccentric and cool and just lived his best life? We'll never know because, you know, he just kind of hung out. Everybody loved him. He was our, he was our first and only emperor. <laughs> I don't know that he was the hero we deserved at that time. But he was yeah, the hero we know. needed. He was the hero we needed. It's true. It's true. He was great. And he kind of made his own reality. He was he was a pretty cool guy from 
historical accounts of him. And he's still pretty well loved by people. He's one of my favorite eccentric historical figures. Yeah. I had no idea about anything about him. I thought he was that guy that like had... Oh, really? Wasn't there someone that declared that a chunk of Manhattan was theirs or something and was a country? Yeah. I thought it was the same guy. And it's a... And that guy's boring. Yeah. <laughs> no. So at some point, I want to talk about the Republic of Malaysia, which is a uh, declared micronation. And they actually have a section devoted to uh, Emperor Norton I. Is that in Amsterdam? Republic of Malaysia. No, it's in the United States. Hmm. There's there's a chunk of it's Amsterdam a- that's also like its own legal entity. So the Republic of Malaysia, uh, <laughs> yeah, he's got a website. He's pretty interesting, and I'll talk about him at some point. Uh, I want to talk about micronations and where they went. So I'll talk about him at some point, but he is also a fan of the Emperor Norton. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I'm glad I got to talk about it. Me him. too. And then Pan- Pangea is awesome. I am glad I was able to find pretty decent explanations for how we know Pangea existed and where it went. Because sometimes you just accept things on their face, but being able to understand the process can be really important for whether or not you accept the information. I accept the information of Pangea existing, by the way. <laughs> As do I. <laughs> I... I- I uh, don't know why you wouldn't. I mean, there's there's a lot of people that think a lot of things about geology, and that's just how it goes. But sometimes. we have we have different. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> maybe not the time or the place for this. <laughs> Lithosphere. It's a sphere. <laughs> the end. The end. You can find out more about our podcast at wheredoesitpodcast.com. You can email us with suggestions or arguments or anger or happiness at where does it podcast at gmail.com you can find us on twitter and instagram uh, you can find our links on our website and we hope you have an excellent day yes